when I say black belt lifestyle is there's just been too many people that have had experiences where they truly respect or look up to a black belt because of their notoriety and skill on the mat. And then especially in the social media world, you start getting exposed to other areas of people's life and you realize like, wow, this person isn't what I thought they were, or I don't have respect for them, right? Or I don't at least have respect for them as a person, but I have respect for them as an athlete. And for me, I'd love for myself and for others to be respected for what they do on the mats, but even more so respected for what you do off the mats, because we spend more of our life and time off the mats than we will ever do on the mats. So when I say black belt lifestyle, like that's what I'm really talking about. Welcome to Forever White Belt. I'm your host, Adolfo Ferranda. Today on the show, we have Dr. Jarrell Garcia. At the age of 33, Dr. Garcia is a 10th planet Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, black belt under Zach Mislany and J.M. Holland. His journey extends beyond the mats as he brings a wealth of knowledge and academic prowess to the conversation. Armed with a doctorate in education, Dr. Garcia specializes in topics of athletic identity, leadership, and organization management. Currently serving as a college professor and the associate director at the University of Rhode Island, Dr. Garcia's impact reaches far beyond the confines of academia. Originally hailing from Brooklyn, New York, he completed all his schooling in Pennsylvania before embarking on a transformative decade in California. During his time in the Bay Area, Dr. Garcia spent three and a half years training at 10th Planet Walnut Creek, a period that coincided with his professional tenure at UC Berkeley. This intersection of academic expertise and jiu-jitsu mastery paints a fascinating picture of a man who seamlessly integrates discipline of the mind with the physicality of the body. This episode is filled with insights, inspiration, and the wisdom that comes from a decade of navigating the diverse landscapes of education, athleticism, and personal growth. And with that, I give you Jarrell Garcia. Jarrell, welcome to the show, man. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate you. Jarrell, you are a black belt under a friend of the show, Zach Mislany, under 10th Plant uh, Bethlehem, correct? Yeah, correct. He was also the fishing at my wedding. And JM, I should say also, who's yeah, also yeah. fantastic. Zach is a, just a crazy entrepreneur. He does like a million things. You guys are sort of similar in, in, a, in a way, it seems like. Yeah, kind of kindred spirits, if you will. Um, but yeah, he has his hand in so many things and continue to have his hand in so many things. So that's probably why we connected so much and have stayed so close. And why I say that also is because you're both spinning so many plates or have constantly. When I look at your, you know, as we mentioned in the intro, all of your accolades and all of your academic work and all of the stuff in general is, is absolutely nuts, including uh, fatherhood as well, coaching occasionally and, and just doing jujitsu in general. I, I don't see how you even squeeze the time in for all this stuff there's kind of a so i'm jamaican by culture and there's kind of a running joke jamaicans always have 17 jobs i'm, I'm just living i'm just living up to uh the, the culture if you will that's another thing is like uh geographically <laughs> you're all over the place in the united states when i'm tracking when we're researching you i'm living in rhode island now uh, the new england area and we moved out here 2022 august of 2022 and honestly, I forgot Rhode Island was even a state. It's a small state. And it just so happened that things lined up perfectly to where after spending 10 years in California, even though I was originally from the East Coast, it just perfectly lined up and ended up in Rhode Island. But it's been, I've been loving it. I don't want to talk too nice about it because then people start coming over here. So what compels you to sort of move towards all these multiple goals that we mentioned in the introduction and, and otherwise? There's a particular moment in my life that I kind of always go back to that I think speaks to why I'm kind of on all these endeavors. My dad was a Boy Scouts troop leader for my younger brother or, or Cub Scouts or what have you. And we were living in Pennsylvania and they would commute to New York every day. 
right? So I commute to New York every day and I'll never forget. It was after a club scouts meeting and a dad was talking to my dad and he was like, oh, uh, where do you get your haircut? Because my dad always has his haircut. And he said, oh, I cut it myself. And the guy's like, hold on. What do you mean you cut yourself? He's like, yeah. He's like, but you have a lineup and a fade and everything. He's like, yeah, I cut it myself. He's like, hold on. So you commute two hours each way to New York. You are the Cub Scout troop leader. You coach your kids soccer on the weekend and you're cutting your own hair. Where do you find that? And I looked at another man, look at another man, almost like a superhero. I was like, I like that. Call it ego or what have you. But like, that kind of inspired me to be like, oh, you can explore these different avenues of life as long as you're willing to kind of be uncomfortable for a little bit, make some mistakes, maybe have a bad haircut or two, and then move forward. You know what I mean? So that started driving me of, okay, yeah, I love sports at this time, but I love sports. I love art. I love poetry. I love all these other things. Let me start diving into them. And um, yeah, over time, I started kind of checking these boxes off, uh, both intentionally and unintentionally. Yeah, I definitely say that was probably what kind of drive me to where I'm at today. I find that people who tend to excel in things often have a component of a lot of curiosity too. Does that, is that sort of fall in line for yourself as well? If you ever were to take a road trip with me, it's either going to be the best road trip or the worst road trip because I don't play music because <laughs> I'm literally just thinking or would be talking because, yeah, my brain will just go down a rabbit hole and uh, I have to literally like filter myself so that people know how I got to the end point of whatever question I may ask. Otherwise, you're going to be like, how, what? We were just talking about sushi. How did you get about why horses were no longer an industry that we're putting money into? But that's my brain uh, kind of 24 seven for better or for worse. I love that you mentioned the bad haircut because I think one of the Achilles for a lot of people is worrying about what other people think, right? To the point of where it sort of paralyzes you. And it seems like you learned that lesson early on when you give us the example of that as well. And that, that helps you, you know, move forward in life. Oh, 100%. My parents kind of raised me like with this balance of you should care about what people think. Like it's, it's conducive to you navigating the world to be aware how people perceive you and also what you're putting out into the world. But also, if you know that you're not doing harm and it is within the purpose that you're trying to accomplish, by all means also move forward with that. Because you could be on a great path and everyone could think it's not a good path. But once again, if you're not doing harm, if you're taking into account the impact it can have both for you and also the people in your circle or the world at large, then that may actually be the right way. And so it's find that balance and always checking in with yourself and also hopefully having a close circle that you can also check in on to make sure that when you're moving in a way that's conducive to what you're trying to accomplish, but also not at the detriment of those around you, your inner circle and outer circle. Just a reminder, please give us a five-star review on Apple Music and Spotify and become a VIP member for only 99 cents a month. Get ad-free episodes at anchor.fm forward slash forever white belt forward slash subscribe. And check us out on Instagram at Forever White Belt Show. Go buy your Forever White Belt swag at teespring, T-E-E, spring.com, forward slash forever dash white dash belt. Check us out on YouTube now at Forever White Belt. Finally, if you ever get to beautiful Northern California, please come roll with us at North Bay Jiu-Jitsu in Marin County, just north of San Francisco. There are amazing instructors and everyone there are great people. Mention the podcast and get two weeks free. How have your academic studies uh, influenced your jujitsu and your thinking of jujitsu? Typically, I hear people ask the reverse, right? <laughs> so I'm curious uh, about this particular way. I was never focused academically, really, throughout throughout my upbringing. I tried to honestly do the least amount of work as possible to get by. Um, and then during my undergrad, I almost failed out. And then I had a light switch and I shot up from there making diesels and so forth and so on. Um, but I would say it is, and it kind of goes back to the question you asked before, the curiosity piece, right? So I love asking questions or hearing questions or hearing ideas and then asking questions about those ideas. 
And through research, you kind of have to do that, right? Doctoral research is very in-depth. Like my dissertation was like, I believe like 175 pages was my dissertation. And the majority of that is literally looking up content that's already out there and deciphering it for yourself. And for me, I want to introduce that for students, you know, when I'm coaching, right? Like, yes, I want to bring up a topic to you, but I also want you to explore it on your own because the outcome that you may come up with may be slightly different than the outcome I came out with, or your path to getting to the outcome I came out with may be slightly different. So for me on the coaching side of jujitsu, that's what I try to do is here's the technique, here's more so the concept, and let's explore. And then for myself and my own practice, it's trying to stay disciplined in the continuing to explore because it's very easy to start staying in your safe zone of here's my game here's what i'm working i'm going to stay in my pocket right especially if you're a black belt or if you have visitors coming in or you want to make sure that your students feel like they can trust in, in your competence so it's if anything it's pushing that hey i don't know everything let me keep exploring let me explore this new thing that i i'm kind of jaded towards or whatever it may be because that's also another layer to it so i think it can it forces me to continue to have that open mind of exploration but also be cognizant of how my students learn and coming at their development in different ways it's kind of like when you only play your a game for instance you know whatever that may mean in uh, jujitsu and not moving past that for whatever reason, and perhaps it ties back to that fear of what others are thinking, you know, or you know, if I lose, and that could be relevant to a belter or something like that. Oh, for sure. I'll never forget the first time Eddie came out to Templeton of Bethlehem. I think Zach and Jam, I think were blue belts at the time running a gym, and they were like 145, 135 pounds. So you're running your own gym and your blue belts, and you're smaller too. So you as a gym owner, you have to be ready and prepared both physically and also like emotionally, if you will, prepared for people coming to visit your school right? Because they want to, you know, join, but also somewhat challenging you. You want to kind of test, you want to, you want to test yourself, right? So as a blue belt, especially an undersized blue belt, that's challenging. So that's something that Eddie like really like big up uh, Zach and Jam for like, hey, the fact that these guys are blue belts running their school and they're smaller guys and they have to take on the challenges of a 185 pound wrestler coming in, even with no experience, that's still a challenge. You know what I mean? So that could weigh on you. You know what I mean? The whole ego piece and what people perceive of you. So yeah, it, it could definitely take a toll. So you have to kind of continue checking on yourself. It feels like jujitsu is still, to an extent, although there's been tremendous growth, in the stage of the leather helmets is sort of the analogy I give. I'm curious on your take in terms of the evolution thus far and, and where it's going and how do you see it? And for our European listeners out there, by the way, when I refer to leather helmets, historically American football, as we call it, uh, they used to actually wear leather helmets instead of the modern day harder, you know, shelled helmets. So anyways, your thoughts, Drew? Well, I love that you say that because I've been on a couple of posts over the past couple of years saying exactly that. I was like, jujitsu is in its infancy. I think it's now gone into like its toddler phase, right? I think we've, we've kind of reached, I've kind of reached its, its toddler phase. And that's not an insult. Like, once again, like, you got to think the legends of our sport. I mean, like the top legends of our sport. And obviously, we're not going all the way back, but like the biggest names in our sport, they're like in their 50s and 60s. Like, if you look at other sports, once again, you're talking about leather helmets, you're talking about decades and decades and decades ago. By all means, yes, we can track the history of jujitsu over 100 years, but jujitsu as we know it today is still very new. I mean, the professionalization of jujitsu, even the quality of coaching of jujitsu, the business of jujitsu, those things are all relatively very, very new. The, the ability to make a living off of purely jujitsu and not only having to be competitive, but also running it as a business, that's also very, very new. It's, a, it's such an awesome time period to be in, but we should never confuse it with us being so far along. You, you know what I mean? Well, there's still so much to learn. And I think as we continue to have more people participate in jujitsu and you have more, and I'm just going to use a common one like doctors and physical therapists for an example who are participating in and falling in love with it. 
that will come with more resources, more knowledge that are then brought into our sport. You know what I mean? How to properly train. What is proper lifting? What is proper nutrition? What are proper sleeping habits? What is, what is a toxic culture, right? Psychology will start being brought in. So all these things that have been around in larger society for so long and in other sports for so long, we'll start seeing phased into Jiu-Jitsu more as we continue moving forward. That's amazing that you mentioned that. Yeah. I often say just academy owners, for instance, that they wear so many different hats and they don't realize when they, they get into it, they just think I'm going to be doing some jujitsu in this place and make some money and get some students. And I'm going to be the person that everyone looks up to. And then they realize they have to think of things like marketing and advertising and what's the best plunger to unclog a toilet or how to deal with parents, an angry parent. Yeah. So like I got my chef coat, I think it was 2011 or 2010 after working two and a half years underneath a, a Japanese chef. And people are like, oh, so do you want to open up a restaurant now? And I'm like, no, just because you love cooking doesn't mean you should own a restaurant. Just because you love jujitsu does not mean you should own an academy. And that's hard for some people to understand, right? Once again, you can still be very heavily involved while not running. If anything, honestly, I know it takes the love out of it for some people once you realize what goes into it. But it's not as simple of if you love it, therefore you should do it. There's a little bit more that goes into it. Um, and we should, we should speak more about that, you know what I mean? So that these uh, people who are up and coming, who are actually able to make a living for themselves a little bit earlier on than some of our legends, right? You can be, honestly, a purple or brown belt, build up notoriety, build up a platform to where you have the financial means to be able to open up your own academy, but not know all the things that go into it, once again, from the business side to run an academy. And then you can still fail, where before they may have known all those pieces, but once again, the ability to generate revenue was a little bit, or the ability to build up a nest egg in order to open up your own school is a little bit tougher. So that's why you had the more common, you opened up your gym, you had three other jobs to help you support it until your gym got big enough that you're able to quit each and every single one of those jobs. That was, was a more common path, right? But that's changing once again with the professionalization of jujitsu, but it does come with hopefully more mentorship and more looking into what it takes to actually run a successful gym. I love that thought of mentorship. That's such a X factor that a lot of people don't speak enough about in this jujitsu world besides uh, coaching, teaching. Yeah. Well, and we also like, uh, as you, and you perfectly said, like a coach or a gym owner, which are two different things. They oftentimes have to wear so many hats. And I would say there are probably gyms that are run by successful coaches and the gym is doing well because of the coaching, not necessarily because it has a good business practice. And then hopefully it's sustainable enough to where they can get it to the point where they can then go, you know what, I'm going to have someone else actually run my business to really get things up and going. But I think that's another factor as well. You may have someone running a successful gym and they may be a great mentor in some capacities, but you may still have to go to someone who's more on the business side of things. They may not be as good as the jujitsu practitioner. One of the things I want to talk about is learning disabilities in athletes. And uh, I, I should probably refer to them as challenges or, or whatever it may be, but we'll commonly phrase these things as, and you know, some people like attention deficit disorder type of thing, ADHD, or some people have referred to as like um, physical dyslexia, that kind of thing. When you're trying to see things and you tell people to move one way and you move the opposite, your thoughts on coaches, instructors, teachers, how to deal with these type of scenarios and your thoughts in general on this. That's such a like deep question because there's so many layers to it. And it takes work on the part of the coach, but also the student. And the days of, and this goes back into, once again, as we get more people from outside or from other professions coming into Jiu-Jitsu, will start influencing it, right? The days of everyone coming in, I show you the technique two or three times, you go drill it with your partner, and then we roll. We're starting to see people start becoming more creative and going, oh, hold on, we should be engaging with our students in, like, in different types of way. So coaches need to look at, okay... And I'm going to go with very like basic level ones that literally everyone could implement tomorrow as coaches, right? When you're showing a technique, are you showing it from the same angle every single time you demonstrate the technique? 
right? So what I mean by that is I'm right, right in front of you. And let's say I have my partner in front of me, right? And I demonstrate the technique. Instead of having all your students, because they're usually circled around you, I'm now going to change the angle. So now you can see the same technique from a different angle. So now where I wasn't able to see that foot and where it was going, I can now see it. And then I rotate again. So I'll do essentially, I'll show the technique four times, but I do it at four different angles. Making that small adjustment, we will see less of, well, what do I do with this foot? Or I didn't see where the hand went. Right. So once again, something so, so small as that, we can see improvements. We know things such as like, yeah, can you use metaphors? Can you give uh, references to the things that they maybe have to experience if you know your student was a former athlete and you so happen to know a little bit about that sport? So for example, we just had a student, a new student who joined our gym, who is a assistant soccer coach at the university. Right. I was fortunate to play soccer and work with some international soccer clubs uh, over the past handful of years. So as I'm demonstrating a technique and I needing him, it was a stand up wrestling technique, a shuck by, I'm telling him how he needs to like turn his hip over. I'm like, okay, think about trying to block someone from getting the ball, right? You don't leave yourself open. You cut the angle and turn away. And he's like, boom. And he made the connection immediately, right? So it's trying to not just describe techniques, how we see them, but trying to describe techniques, potentially how other people would see them if they don't have your knowledge. One of the most obvious too, are like what the visual cues of this kind of thing are also. Yeah. So like anytime I'm the, I'm the Uki, right. Or the person the technique is being demonstrated on, I'll kind of like overemphasize certain pieces or I'll even point. So if they're doing an arm bar to me, I make sure I have my thumb up. Right. And I'll like really emphasize it. And then the students may ask why. And I'll go, Hey, I'm doing thumbs up because that's what we're looking for. So once again, even subtle things like that kind of helps people. So that was all from the coaches, but then there's also the student side of things. You know what I mean? Well, actually, I'm, unfortunately, I'm going to put it back on coaches because I, I always, always, always blame up as, as a leader. I always blame up, like telling them what they should focus on. You know what I mean? So as we're doing certain techniques, not only am I doing the four different angles and they go, Hey, when I show it this time, really focus on this. When I show it this time, really focus on this. So they're also getting a better picture. And then, yeah, as students, it's once again, focusing on what you can focus on. Try to focus on different things if you can, right? All right. This time I'm going to focus on that left foot. I'm going to focus on the right foot. Focus on this arm, focus on this arm. That's a very basic one you can do. And then as coaches are hopefully, or uh, instructors are hopefully going around being able to ask questions, but once again, people don't want to seem like they're wrong or they don't want to say, all right, does anyone want to see it one more time? Right. Because I don't want to hold up class. Right. I don't want people to think that. I... Let it go. Right. We're literally here to learn. Because if you say, yeah, I'd like to see it one more time, you're going to, and you look around, you're going to see a bunch of people go, oh, yeah, thank God. Right. Yeah, it's never happened when I've said one more time and someone said yes, that everyone was like, oh, really? One more time, right? So also, yeah, I think that'll help students knowing that, hey, if you need to see one more time, probably someone else does too. That's an interesting term, blaming up. What do you mean by that and why? For better or for worse, I take a lot of responsibility and accountability in being in leadership positions, right? Albeit as a father, a husband, associate director, professor, black belt, head coach, whatever it may mean. Anytime something goes wrong, my immediate response isn't to go, okay, how did they do something wrong or where did they make the mistake? My immediate thought is where could I have supported them better or where could I have provided an additional resource or where did, and once I go through that filter, I don't absolve the person of all fault or responsibility in the situation, but that's just my initial filter. My initial filter is always to look inward before I look outward. So when I say blame up, I go, all right, what could I have done to set this person up better? Right? Could I have explained this technique better? And then once I do that, I'll then see from their side, okay, were they paying attention? Were they talking when we were doing this? Were they X, Y, Z? And then I try to bring that all together and I'll approach it from a, hey, Adolfo, 
hey, so I realized that you were doing X, Y, Z, but maybe from the angle that uh, you were at and where I was showing it from, you weren't able to see where my hand was going. So here's what I was doing, right? But does that make sense? Or were you able to see that? And you may go, oh, no, I completely missed it. And I go, ah, that makes sense. Well, next time I'm going to show different angles, but also really focus on these different and I'll give you a help, right? I'll go, hey, focus on this. So not only will I say I'm going to change my actions moving forward, if I can, I'll also go, hey, here's something to help you adjust your actions. You know what I mean? So even though I start with myself and then work my way out, I still make sure I address both parties. I like it because it sounds like a mental workflow that you're going through this, you know, sort of yes, no type of scenario in your head. Um, is this something like fluid, fixed or dynamic? Can a coach apply this, instructor apply this in just a general scenario all the time? Yes. Well, at least in my, I, I do. But also once again, as we establish, I'm kind of overthinker. Yeah, at this point, it's automatic, but it was over time of practice of going, okay, you know, the whole idea that there's three sides to every story. Well, the same thing goes with everything, right? So I'm going, okay, what is my perspective? What role did I play in this, both good and bad? What is their role in this, both good and bad? And then what is the neutral, out of our control component to this all? All three of those are a factor in every type of circumstance. So my brain automatically goes through that no matter what we're talking about. I'll be it a technique, I'll be an argument, I'll be it making a decision. It's going, okay, what is my circle of control in this? What is the circle of concern in the sense of that I'm not in control of it? And then what is it for this person? And then what are just things of the scenario itself? Can you give me like a jujitsu aha moment that you have and just something that comes to mind? Boom. The first one that comes to mind, just because it's so simple. And even when I say it to people, people are like, that's not that big of a deal. I think it was either the first or second time we went out to visit uh, Jean-Jacques, Jean-Jacques Machado. We were working on butterfly and someone asked the question like, oh, what if I'm trying to engage someone in butterfly garden? They just keep backing up. Right. So like, I'm trying to engage and trying to pull you in and you back up and he's like, then you back up and they come to you. And I was like, yeah, yeah, that makes perfect sense. <laughs> right. And, and it's so funny because I was always, I think at this point I was starting to do seminars and then my seminars, I was always emphasizing pushing and pulling. If I push you, you're, you're likely to push back. If I pull you, you're likely to pull. But for some reason, I never made that connection with a technique when I don't already have a connection. Right. Cause when I already have a connection, if I have a two on one on you and I pull, right. Yeah. So he said, but there's, you can do that even without a connection, right? If I start approaching onto your space, you're likely to back up or confront. So I've been sitting here, butt scooting around this place, trying to catch people. If I would have just stopped and had them come to me. And now as they're coming to you, you had the momentum to meet them where you need them to be. So it's like, and that applies to life as well, right? Sometimes you need to give up space uh, so that people can take it and now you can meet them where they're at. Wow, such sage advice. What was that like meeting John Jock? He's one of the nicest, I'd probably say top five nicest people I've met in all of jiu-jitsu. I think, I think the first time I met him was at an EBI event. And you would have thought like we were long lost friends if you just saw the interaction of, oh, hi, John Jock gave me a hug. And it's like, oh, can I take a picture? It's like, sure. And I'm like, I just hugged John Jacques. Had my, my own little star, star moment. Yes, yeah, such a nice and great guy. And then once again, his instruction is just so simple and clean. Not that I wish I could coach like him because we're naturally different people. I'm a talker. I talk a lot. But he's able to have the same impact with fewer words. Right. So while I'll have an impact of, if we're using just numbers, I have an impact of 10 and I had to use 50 words, he'll have an impact of 10 and he was able to use eight words. I really appreciate that about his uh, coaching and just him as a, as a person from the limited interactions I've had had with him. What in jujitsu do you wish you were better at? Mm. Using my athleticism, if we're talking physically, 
I mean, there's non-physical things, but I'd say physically, that's the first one. My first jujitsu MMA coach, because I technically started first training for MMA and then transitioned strictly to jujitsu, he really beat overhead. Don't use strength or speed or agility. Like, we get it. You're fast. You're strong. Don't use it. So I developed a style where I was trying nuts because I, I liked, I was going knee slices and like, Doug, I said, I was shooting, like I was using my speed. Once again, I played soccer, so I was, I was used to using my speed in that way. And he really like beat it over my head of like, no, you don't use a jutsu. It's not about using strength, speed, and agility. And I know better now. But that's something that over the years, I've, even though I've overcome that perspective, one, I do love my style now, but that is something that would make me even that much more dangerous. It would make my game more dynamic and it would open up more techniques that I currently don't use because they are more effective when you are using those components, right? So like, yes, you can have a nice slow knee slice, like Fiona Davies has an amazing knee slice that she can hit on everyone and she has a dynamic one and she also has it where she can just slowly cut through you, right? So there's ways to do it. But she, once again, hers are dynamic. She has two. She has a slow one and the fast, more dynamic one. While I would just have my slow one. I have the one when I sit in, uh, allow you to grab the leg, start fighting the head, get the underhook, and then I just cut through slowly. But it would be nice to be able to also threaten the quick one as well. So I'd probably say the habit, because it is a habit, which one could be broken, the habit of not using my physical trait of speed and, and strength to capitalize more on my jiu-jitsu or open up my jiu-jitsu even more. That would definitely be the biggest one. That's so interesting. Yeah, I just spoke to a Pennsylvania coach named uh, Michael Demko, fantastic wrestling background, martial artist. And he learned jujitsu via an old school way of a VHS tape because there was no academy in his town with his brother just going at it. And when he first rolled with someone, he didn't realize that there was this flowy type of style that we have. A lot of people just enter it slowly. He came from a wrestling perspective, so it was all explosive. So his jujitsu tends to be a little more what he said on the rougher side, but he's, you know, tempered it now but it's funny that that you mentioned that it was almost the opposite yeah your background both your own background but then your coaching right the type of coaching you had the type of training partners you had obviously shapes the type of practitioner you're going to be so if you're at a, a school that once again everyone's kind of flow rolling in the smooth style you're likely going to adopt that style but that's also the importance of either competing or cross training especially if you don't have a large enough academy where there are so many different styles because then once again, not from a competitive standpoint of competing, but just from an exposure standpoint of you being able to see and feel different styles and seeing how those could either complement your game. Well, they, they will complement your game no matter what, or show you a big blind spot in your game. But either way, there's that benefit there. Or some people want to call for like the standardization of jujitsu, right? Like a or a global sort of governing body for various reasons, unifying rules, perhaps shunning some people who, you know, they feel aren't really great for the sport. I tend to have an aversion towards that because I, I come from more of the, you know, I have a tech background. So a lot of it from the open source type of uh, mentality where a lot of beautiful things bloom from chaos, right? Correct. And, uh, trying different things constantly. Your thoughts on both perspectives? We're kind of on the same path. Like I also agree, but also I'll speak, I'll try to speak to the other side, right? I guess you could argue that what would make jujitsu uh, a top tier sport, because it, it may not ever reach the level well, it likely won't ever reach the level, as much as I love jiu-jitsu, likely won't ever reach the level of NFL, uh, MLB. So while that's not the option, it could be the Olympics, right? Like for, so for people, they're going, okay, what is the best way to make this an Olympic sport? Cause that is the highest level of sport. If it's not from a financial standpoint, it's from another standpoint, right? And being able to present to the IOC, here's our rules. Here are our standards. 
here's what everyone follows, here's the training and development behind it so that you know you'll have consistent, sustainable athletes who are training at a high level. It makes sense from that model if that's, if that's the perspective they're attacking it from. But from a growth of the sports standpoint, similar as you said, that's where it would be limited. Because once again, I'm a 10 plan of black belt, so I'm almost like the, we're a prime example of uh, not, not necessarily being the most uh, standard cookie cutter uh, piece, right? But as you can see, like so many creative and fun pieces come from that that then revolutionize the sport and also just expand the sport in so many different ways. Um, and obviously, there are challenges that come with it, but um, I, I personally believe it definitely does more good than harm. Um, and once again, we still see the sport growing. Number one, what 10th Planet used to be seen as outsiders, and now it's like kids are born into 10th Planet now, you know, like little tiny kids who are amazing now. On another point, too, is that the relevance of the Olympics itself is um, being called into question. The ratings are tremendously down. And so unless you're inside sports, it's it's a really big deal. But outside of that circle, you know, it's like, uh, I don't know. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So the people who are calling for the standardization, they tend to be, obviously I may be generalizing here, they tend to not be the 18, 22, 24, 30-year-olds who are diving into the sport like right now. It's the ones that are seeing all this change. And once again, some of the some of the cons are also coming with some of the changes as well. And then going like, we, we need to fix this, right? Maybe fixing it would be doing this. You know what I mean? So so I, I do think that sentiment may also kind of phase out over time, but then it'll just come out and it'll come back in a new way as once again, things tend to repeat themselves over history. What makes a great student, a great jujitsu student? I would say what makes a great jujitsu student, what makes someone a great student in, in almost all aspects of life, right? And in, in the classroom and in, in, in anything, the willingness and desire to learn is probably in the top like if I don't want to learn the technique, it doesn't matter how eloquent you speak. It doesn't matter how good the technique is. It doesn't matter how tested this technique is. If I don't want to learn it, it's not going to, I'm not going to use it. Can, can you show me an example or give me an example of someone who shows up to class without that? So a good example is, uh, and I'm going to use template in particular, you'll oftentimes hear, my knees don't work that way. If you think of some of the template techniques, the rubber guard, which is a high guard. So if I'm doing a rubber guard day in class, and obviously we have the 18 year old who's 140 pounds, but I also have the working dad who works in office every day and he's doing this for an activity and he's a little bit overweight. He also came in here to build a community and lose weight and he's seeing what we're doing. He's going like, I'll do it, but I'm, I'm not really trying to, like, I'm not going to use this thing ever. Right. So the willingness and openness to want to learn the technique and give it a fair chance. Cause even if you don't plan on actually using it, at least exploring it because, hey, let's say you don't use it, but you truly learn the intricacies of it, you'll know how to defend it, right? Because I believe by knowing an attack, you can know the defense, right? Because if I go, hey, here are the most important aspects of this attack, then I also know what I need to take away to make it less effective, right? So if you go, although I do not want to learn this technique because I do not think it is applicable to my game and I will never use it, I'm open to learning it so that I know the components of it so I can break it down. Also, so how do I, how I avoid it? But also that openness may lead you to where you may not be using rubber guard, but you may use the Sean Williams guard, which looks very similar, right? Where instead of you're going high with the, the calf being across your opponent's upper shoulders, you're hugging at your own behind the knee, right? And trapping the arm in a similar fashion and still opening up some of the same attacks. So that willingness and openness to learn techniques, even if you don't think they're relevant, I think that's just so huge. Once again, willingness and openness. Openness may even be more important. And then consistency. And the reason why I'm going to put that probably in the number top 
top three things is because it impacts the student as well as the coach. And what I mean by that is it's just very hard to grasp techniques if you're only using them once per month, which then makes you feel less confident because when you do try to use them, they don't work. So then what do you say? This technique doesn't work or it doesn't work for me. So coming in with a willingness and openness to learn the techniques, even if they don't work initially, right? And then being consistent with it, like those two things will automatically put you in a category of you're going to start advancing decently well. And then we can start getting into like being curious, uh, being disciplined, like actually working on the techniques. But I'd probably say that for me, those are probably like top two things that uh, should be emphasized a little bit more. Conversely, what makes a great instructor? I personally have a holistic approach to instruction or what I consider leadership, because that's a leadership role for me. So I put that into the category of leadership. For me to be a good instructor, you have to be competent, empathetic, and organized. Competence because you could be the nicest person in the world, but if you don't know what you're talking about and you can't actually teach me anything, well, what are we doing here? Like that's, that's tough, right? So you have to be competent. Empathetic and empathetic, we're starting to get into interpersonal skills. If you are not a person that is able to interact well with other people or you don't have quality character traits, I think that makes you less of a good instructor for me personally. And then lastly, organize, right? Once again, if you're just throwing out techniques randomly, that's also going to impact the quality of your students' training and also their development overall. So for me, those three things, it kind of touches on once again, the technical component. It touches on the interpersonal and cultural component because being empathetic, you're able to then create a culture where people feel safe. They feel secure. They feel that they could push each other, right? So that empathy comes with, once again, it's not just fluffy stuff when people tend to hear the word empathetic. It's like, no, it's also how people feel interacting in your space. Like, I feel safe in this place to go really hard and leave the room with a bruised eye, bloody nose, and knowing that we're not leaving this place with any ill will towards each other. That's created by an instructor who creates that environment, right? So that technical competence for me is just as equally as important as that culture building component, if you will. And then being organized so that once again, there's structure that also creates stability for your team. And then also that ensures some level of stability with the business side of it if you're also the business owner. But if you're just an instructor, then uh, it's just having that structure for your students. I'm really happy that you brought up the empathetic part because that's, I think, a component that a lot of athletes and instructors and tough people, if you will, don't bring up a lot because that's a, can be perceived as a weak or vulnerable sort of like a state, if you will. Yeah. Culturally speaking, Jamaicans tend not to talk so openly about feelings and emotions, particularly men. Like, you know what I mean? I know that's common in some other cultures as well. You know what I mean? Um, but for me, my upbringing, we, we did talk about it, right? I did get to see my dad cry, not a bunch of times, but enough times that I knew that it was quote unquote, okay for a man to cry. You know what I mean? I understand while some people may have a, I guess, aversion to what they think it means to be empathetic, right? And when I say what they think it means to empathetic, they may think it means you can't be hard on someone. You can't tell someone the hard facts. You can't push people. You can't, it's like, no, 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 no. It's just coming from a place of like love, if you will, or coming from a place with good intentions. And obviously there's layers to it. You can have good intentions and have good, bad outcomes. And then you have to take ownership of that. But yeah, it's not just, hey, everything is rainbows and butterflies. And if you make an excuse for a month straight of why you couldn't come to class, don't worry, it's no big deal, even though you want to get promoted. It's like, no, no, no. I care for you enough and I care for your development enough that I'm going to have a sit down and hard conversation with you of, hey, if you want to accomplish X, Y, Z, here's what you need to do. And currently, you're not doing that. So what can we do to make sure that you're on that path? And having those hard conversations, that's empathy as well. But it tends to be lumped into the category of, oh, no, it's just uh, soft motions and everything is good. So I guess touching on that too, advice on uh, coaching at tournaments. 
So long, I, I know there's definitely those different coaching styles. And there are people who are great instructors who are not necessarily good at coaching at tournaments. And there are people who are great at torturing at tournaments. You like want them there at a tournament, but they may not be the best instructor. So for me, the coaching style of just yelling, up, 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 up. I know I have to get up. I got taken down and I'm down two points. I know. Sometimes that helps certain athletes once again. So at the end of the day, it all depends on your athletes. You know, hopefully by this point, what your athletes use as a trigger to help them, right? So if yelling up, 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 that's the fire that your athlete needs to get up based on your training. Cool. But I tend to think they already know that. So for me, I tend to go with the specific thing they need to do at that time or the reminder. One, I don't yell. I, I raise my voice not loud enough so that my athletes can hear me, but I'm not a yeller. Like I'm almost talking to my athletes. I'm going, yep, okay, so we need to do that now. Yep, and we already know what we're looking for here because hopefully as a coach, you've worked with your athletes where you know their game. So I don't have to go, yes, grab his left arm because what are you going to do? You're going to hide your left arm. So hopefully you're working with the athletes enough to where you're able to genuinely coach them and go, hey, you know what we're looking for here. All right, let's go for our option two. And they know what option two is. So like we don't have to once again go, yeah, grab their left arm. And that's honestly part of the 10 planet system. People are we're thinking like, oh, they just wanted to change all the names. It's like, no, we didn't want to be sitting there going, yeah, take your arm, put it under through his arm like an underhook, but no, reach towards the sky. No, zombie your arm. It's like a zombie reaching its hand out. That's why it was there. And it's fun to make up names. But it's because so that we don't have to go, yeah, grab his left arm because you're going to hide your left arm. And now you know what we're doing. Like, no, go for New York. Go for mission control. Go for this. And you already knew what you had to do. For coaching at tournaments, one, know your athletes because, yes, if up, 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 up is what they need to get up, by all means, you could continue doing that. But I believe most people need more than that. So I'd be working on what they, they specifically need to do and address at that time or what they should be looking for if hopefully you know their game. Can you tell me a time you considered quitting and why? I'll say I never had a time that I considered quitting, but I had two particular events or moments or, or seasons of my uh, jiu-jitsu journey that I had to make very difficult decisions. The first one was probably right after Purple Belt, where I was at a point where I was... At the, once again, and I mean this in the most humble way because it's so tiny. Like I was starting to build somewhat of a little name for myself, at least within Templana, where I did a tournament. I was starting to hit twisters, which is like Eddie's signature move. I tapped someone in front of Eddie, like Eddie was like knowing my name, and I was starting to get invites for certain events, right? And I had to ask myself, with the things that you want to accomplish in your life, because I knew I did, I had goals outside of jujitsu. With the things you want to accomplish, will you honestly be able to give jujitsu what it deserves in order for you to take the most out of it? Because I'm six foot two and I naturally weigh 160. I'm a terror, like size wise for people. But I knew, once again, from seeing and working with high level athletes, what it would take to be at the top level. I know that would mean I would have to train minimum, at least how in my brain, how if I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it, right? I know I'd be going and doing 6 a.m. practices. At that time, my school offered 6 a.m. practices. I'd be doing 6 a.m. practices Monday, Wednesday, Friday. I'd be training at lunchtime twice a week. And I would go get to the gym at 7.30 and be there until 10.30. Even if I wasn't going hard sessions in there, I'd be in there all that time. And then traveling on the weekends for tournaments, invitationals, and everything all those lines. I knew that there was no way I'd be able to build a family that I wanted to build, be able to get a doctorate the, that I wanted to have, be able to be go up in my career the way that I've been able to move up in my career. I knew there would be no way to balance all those out. So I had to have kind of like this humbling, but also egotistical conversation with myself of, 
So you're telling me, this is my ego talking. So you're telling me you have the athleticism, you have this, the size, you have the time period. Cause at this time, BJ Fanatics was even the thing. Like you could have been at the precipice of this. You're coming up at this time where there's all these opportunities and you're not going to take advantage of it. Right. That seems like you're throwing away a gift, if you will. That was what my ego was saying. But my more humble side was going, Drill, you know what you want your life to look like. You know what you want to accomplish in your life. And this isn't part of it. So jujitsu is super important to you, but you know you're not willing to sacrifice these other things to do it. So that was a very difficult conversation I had like with my wife at that time. And she like somewhat got it, but she didn't truly get what that meant for me uh, at the time. Now she does. Um, so that was one big moment. And then the other big moment was I had a really bad back injury and I literally like physically couldn't walk. And I was like, I may have to never train jujitsu because I need to be able to walk. I, I literally was unable to put on my socks and I was like 28 years old. Right. So I would say those two moments were probably two of the biggest moments in my jujitsu life where I made major decisions, never thought about quitting, but one of them would have stopped me from being able to ever do jujitsu. And the other one was more so changing what my path in jujitsu would look like. One of the conversations in the zeitgeist of jujitsu right now is the ecological approach. And I know it's been talked to almost to death. It seems like it feels like on every podcast, but I'm asking, I'm trying to get everyone's sort of perspective on it. Your, your perspective on what people are calling the ecological approach. It's funny because like this is something from education, but I really don't even have like a strong opinion on it. I think I may have done like one video on it just because I was like everyone's talking about it. This may even sound dude, like uh, it's, it like just doesn't interest me because it's such a basic educational developmental thing that I'm like, oh, jujitsu is now looking into. Th oh, that's cool. And maybe it's because it has been just beat to death over the time period. I think that's how it has been sort of presented too, is like um, these various figureheads that speak about it are often bringing forward these research papers or something, or this Correct. research that's been done. So that's pre-existing research. It's not like not anything brand new uh, to your point. I love it in the sense that it's exactly that, as you said, they're bringing in research and going, hey, Jiu-Jitsu community, look at this. There's a different way we could be doing this. And I'm like, that's awesome. I love that piece. But beyond that, it like does nothing for me. I think it's just cool that it's being introduced um, and that people will explore it and test it out. And if anything, gives them another way to engage with their students or design their classes. So I love that aspect of it, but it kind of stops stops there. Are you integrating it at all in your teaching at any any point? Or Yeah, I already was kind of doing it sporadically. It was like, oh, this is just what you do at times. But um, it's not as systematic as people are introducing at their academies where they're like, this is what we do here. This is how we design our whole entire curriculum. For me, it's like, oh yeah, I do it like every two weeks. I'll have a class that is stylistically like an ecological approach to the class. When I mention um, jujitsu dogma, what, what comes to mind for you? I believe jujitsu community is at the tail end of believing this. So the idea of being a world champion means that you're going to be a world champion level coach. Obviously, they'll still be able to generate a good amount of pull into their schools, but I believe people have interacted enough with jujitsu and have engaged with enough high level people to go, oh, this person is good on the mats, but they are not a good coach or not a good instructor. Uh, and I do think there's subtle differences between being an instructor and coach. I think that's probably one that we're at the tail end of, but that was still, it's still, it's still prevalent. If once again, whoever the world champion is decided to open up a school, people are going to go, Oh, this person is going to be really good. Let's go to their seminar, but there's levels. You may go to their seminar and you go, yeah, that was great. And then you go to a Jean Jacques and you go, Oh, that's what instruction is. So I think we're, we're still in it, but I, I do think people are getting a lot better understanding. Like that's, there's no correlation with level of competence and, and accolades with the ability to instruct. Like people, I think, have gotten it that there's no correlation there. The next one is kind of muddy, but, and it kind of goes back to what we were kind of just talking about, but 
how to train. And I, I'm trying to like really dial in on this, but I think we go into these, these seasons, if you will, of here's how you're supposed to train to get the best out of your athletes. Bojada, that's, that's how you train. Go hard. Right. And then we go to, we'll switch and go, no, it's flow. It's all about being smooth, right? Where that's how everyone starts training for a period. And then it's like, well, no, it's all about strength training. And then with this, so we kind of go through these where we just poo on one method of training and we all shift over to another method. And then we find the pros and cons to that one or another one gets introduced. And how it usually gets introduced is whoever's the top athletes at the time, they share what they do. So we all adopt it instead of realizing it's like, oh, wait, once again, looking at all other sports, they do a little bit of everything. They do super hard training and they also do super relaxed, fun training where they're literally playing games. And then they also do a completely separate activity because they understand that there's transfer of skills, particularly physical skills more so from one activity to the next. But it's like, we almost have to like truly grasp the idea that no, there's no one specific way. It's a little bit of all these types of things. And then there's the silly ones like, oh, this technique uh, won't cause any real damage. It's just a pain technique. Like people used to say that for like bicep slicers and calf slicers. Oh, it's just a pain technique. It's like, no, you can tear someone's PCL if you do a calf slicer. There was kind of those more silly ones. I think that could just easily be disproven. And then I kind of last one and kind of continues on that one. I guess you could say this is a pet peeve of mine. We know how the body works, mostly. There's science about how the body works. I can't stand where I hear coaches talking about, here's what makes a move effective. And it's literally biomechanically not correct. And we can test this out. Like we know how the arms and our bodies are supposed to move, right? So using a very basic example, a Kimura, right? Kimura, 90 degrees compared to being directly behind the back. We can all test it out. Let's put our arm there and have someone torque here compared to having it back and then going up. You can see which one you'll get a tap quicker on, right? But you'll still have coaches going, no, this is the best way to do it. It's like, well, hey, everyone, let's just test it out, right? So that, so that's something that uh, the idea of coaches just saying, well, this is, this is just how it works. And people just kind of blindly follow them, once again, due to their notoriety or their competence in competition. Just because you're good at something doesn't mean that you always know why you're good at it. Sort of touching on that in terms of like the anatomical aspect of it, you mentioned you're a very tall, very lean individual. When I saw you on video, I thought you're a really big guy. And, and it, so when I see people like that or uh, short and stout or whatever, I like to ask when you're teaching individuals, instructing individuals, how are you teaching to those that are like the opposite of your body type effectively? I, I'm so that's such I'm so happy you asked that question because that kind of goes back to once again not just teaching what you think but teaching what your students need right and that's also a form of empathy right thinking of uh, putting yourself in other one's shoes so that's something I try to be very cognizant of because I'm aware that I'm taller so me using X guard is going to look completely different than the five foot seven hundred and ninety five pound guy using X guard so I try try being the key word to demonstrate the technique but also emphasize sticking points. And what I mean by that is, great, so now we're going to go here, we're going to extend our partner. So let's say I'm in X guard and I extend my partner out and my goal is to have them by me pushing, pull back so that I could grab their ankle, maybe go for a simple sweep. So I'd go, all right, so you extend your partner out and then they naturally bring their leg back and you'd grab their ankle. If you're unable to grab your partner's ankle, because obviously it's easy for me, I have long arms, but then I'll go, if you're unable to grab your partner's ankle, here's what you're going to look to do. So everyone who's able to grab their partner's ankle, boom, they're, they're good. But everyone who's not, they're not sitting here struggling with the technique going, hey, this technique is not working for me. And once again, that doesn't take away any from the instructor. It doesn't even require that much more time. 
But once again, as, as I was just saying, a lot of people are good at things, but they're not aware of all the components of what makes them good at it, right? So you're amazing at that X, uh, X-guard sweep variation, but you're not even thinking about the fact that you're good at it because you have really long arms and really long legs, right? So you're just showing it and then you walk around and then you see half your students not doing it correctly, quote unquote. And then you go, if you can't reach them, you do this. And it's like, you, sh- you should have been aware of that. Right. Or hopefully as you get better, you'll be aware of it. And once again, it's also, it's okay if you're not aware of all these things. Once again, many times that I'm showing a technique and then I'll see people doing something. I'm like, ah, I should have said, if you can't reach the latch, you're going to reach for this and climb up. So once again, it's just being aware and once again, being open as instructors, as much as we said, the student needs to be open. The instructor needs to be open of, Hey, how you explain that may have been eliminating half your students. Um, so you may have to show either a different variation or just emphasize another piece to it. What in jiu-jitsu has been interesting you as of late? Recently, I've been trying to do exactly what I was just mentioning, start using my athleticism. So you really are focused in on this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because I literally tell my students, like, hey, if y'all want to be able to beat me, like, just move around a lot. So I'll train in the gi maybe five times a year, six times a year. But if you watch my style, you're going to be like, this looks like a gi match somehow because I'm just, I, I emphasize grips a lot and just my style is like very, once again, more methodical. And so I tell myself, I was like, hey, if you want to beat me, just move around a lot because my game is grip and clinch based. I'm trying to have you establish a grip so that I could get in close to you and then start tying you up. That's my that's my tip game. So now I'm trying to do the opposite. I'm going, let me move around a lot as well. I'm, you know, I'm going to go for actual knee slices. I'm going to go for uh, more of a Hoffa Mendes style of standing passing or the Jeff Glover more flowy passing. So that's something I'm really like starting to have fun, like exploring of like, yeah, no, I'm going to try to put a pace on you now where before I'm going, yeah, no, let me, I want to lull you into a sleep. I want you to see the submission that I'm going to do and me still hit it on you. That's how I want my game to be like quicksand, if you will. So now I'm starting to explore the, let's have the fun, fast, dynamic game that, that you're seeing everyone do. So I'll do that for a little bit and then I'll likely go back to my, my other style and just introduce new techniques. This art is, it's physically demanding. We leave with bruises and injuries. It's inevitable. How are you mitigating that for your career? You're in charge of a lot of stuff, a lot of people. How are you balancing the two, the real, you know, as you're saying, geez, you're going for athleticism and jujitsu. There are perils that come with that. Oh, yeah. One, I married a physical therapist. No, that just perfectly worked out. So, but no, truly, like uh, having a wife as a physical therapist, that has literally saved me in many ways. And then this is where, like, I'm big on living a holistic lifestyle. So, again, I over, I'm a associate director of campus recreation and my focus is holistic well being. So, what I mean by that is it's not just physical, it's physical, intellectual, spiritual, emotional, social, environmental and financial and professional. Like all those pieces for me are critical. That's how I stay balanced in life, right? And I check in on myself on each of those components. So as jujitsu is my physical or part of my physical component, I say part of my physical component is I'm also making sure I'm getting enough sleep. I sleep eight hours. I make sure I get eight hours of sleep on a bad day. I may get six hours, right? I'm making sure I'm, I'm drinking enough water, right? I make sure that I have a relatively decent diet, uh, depends on your dietary background, like a, a relatively decent diet. So even just those things increases the likelihood of reducing injury. I make sure I stretch, right? And not just when I'm at class, right? I do yoga twice a week. So for me, it's once again, not just going, well, I'm physically fit, because I do jiu-jitsu, it's like, no, your physical includes other things beyond just physical activity. That attention to making sure I'm balancing these other areas ensures that I'm able to go into jiu-jitsu as healthy as possible. But also, I'm not competitive. 
So there's less of a requirement to push super hard every single time or even put myself at risk every single time. So by no means not to be confused with ever like being lackadaisical uh, with training, but also there's difference. Like if you like competition training compared to just having a hard competitive round with your favorite training partner are two different things. So the fact that I'm also not in that realm as much anymore, even though once again, I'll help competitors get ready for competition. Um, I think that also contributes to the fact that once again, I don't have three super hard sessions a week. I may have one or I won't even be a whole full, the full session isn't hard. It's just like one or two rounds are really hard. So between making sure that I'm balancing out on these other areas of life off the mat with also the fact that I'm not in the position that some other athletes are who are once again, active competitive athletes just re reduces the likelihood that I'm going to uh, sustain as many injuries. And my style is also somewhat leans into that. Your thoughts on tapping to lower belts, you know, as a black belt, Perhaps you're putting yourself purposely in late late stage defense scenarios, very late stage, let's say, or not. You know, you just some get get caught sometimes by a feisty purple belt or something like that. Yeah, you should never get tapped by a loop. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, that's just part of that's just part of the game. If a coach or a high level belt tells me I have never been tapped by any of my students or any lower belt, that's not impressive to me because you're telling me that you have never you're not taking chances. You're not putting yourself in uncomfortable as uncomfortable a situation as you could be, right? And you're, and you're playing it relatively safe. That's the first thing I hear, even though it's just coming from a judgmental place. Obviously, it depends on the size of your school. It depends, like, if you're a black belt and you only have white belts, then once again, obviously, if you're going 100%, they're probably not going to tap you. But I'd argue, like, so never. If you're, unless, once again, size also plays a matter. So that, there's definitely that component. But it's like, if you never had any of them even put you in danger, it's like, so, like, you're never in risk? That, that just brings a lot of questions to me. So if I'm not being tapped by lower belts, I'm going, okay, where am I not pushing myself? Where am I staying too much in my comfort zone? So here, I'll say this. If you're not getting tapped at all by lower belts, it's not innately a bad thing, but you can look at it as, is there now an opportunity for you to expose yourself to more dangerous positions? And so if you go, they can't take my back, that's fine. Can you do a technique that it may end up giving up your back? Because there are techniques that almost kind of open you up a little bit. So can you do a technique that may open up your back? All right, try those techniques. And then you go, yeah, they got my back, but they can't choke me. Cool. What escape are you doing? Well, I have this escape down pack. Try two other escapes. Because sooner or later, you're going to go against someone that's shutting down that one escape you have. So do you have two other escapes in your arsenal? Because if not, you're going to find someone that is going to shut down that simple, that one escape you have. So that's how I tend to explore it is, great, you have that down, explore different ones. Continue to explore the different one. One's going to be as open as you want your students to be open. Recently, there was a story that's being played on jujitsu media. There's a Gracie Baja coach who student, a blue belt, or is a blue belt, and has not been terribly successful, I guess, in tournaments in, I would assume it's IBJJF uh, tournaments. Suddenly, he was a white belt in another tournament that he won. I guess the coach has since apologized. I, I don't know to what extent or the details, but your, your thoughts on this type of stuff. I don't believe this is really necessarily new. There's just some people refer to it sandbagging, but this is kind of weird. Yeah. Yeah. Like I saw the story and I saw it like once I was like, oh, okay. And then it just kept popping up and started building some traction. Once again, I have very limited facts on this, right? So if it's true that he had competed at blue belt at tournaments and no matter the outcome, even albeit won or lost, and then afterwards had a tournament to where he competed at white belt. Like, that's just wrong for me, like, period. And I, I put that in a separate category than even sandbagging, right? For me personally, right? Because you can say, hey, this person has stayed too long at this belt and they should move up. But that's different than they literally have a belt and they are changing it to a different belt. 
so I would even put that in the category, even though people have mentioned that sandbagging, I see that as something completely different. Because once again, like a coach has certain goals that they have for their student, right? We could think they're reasonable or unreasonable, but they, they have them in place. But for me, the once again, it's the deception of you did this and then after you literally changed it, that's where it's just like, yeah, no, that's just clearly wrong. But I would put it in a different category than sandbagging. And this brings up the subjectiveness of the belt as well, to some extent. And I love, I love getting belts, right? It's cool. Yeah. I think, you know, yep. it, it makes me feel good when I think it makes everyone feel good. Some people yep. get thrilled on stripes as well. Great for that too. The relevancy of the belt in terms of, I, personally, I don't believe in the meritocracy of the belt anymore, really, because you see, we're in this weird time, right? Where we have these old guys that they truly fought it out with each other, whatever, in, in the way, and they were limited. It was a limited pool of practitioners at the time. And then we have these little kids that have all the data now and have all the optimized, you know, modern stuff, coaching, yep, data, etc. And they are doing things that professionals, you would see them doing it, executing them in ways that are unfathomable. You know, you see one of these teenagers going against a, an older black belt or something like that, and they're maybe a blue belt or something, and they're Correct. winning. And yep. we, we've seen this. It blurs the line. So your thoughts on the concept of the belt in general and your ideas on it? Well, I, similar to you, I, I like the idea of belts. Uh, when I hear, hear people say, belts don't matter. It's like, no, your belt mattered. Yeah, like, you know your belt mattered. Right. If it didn't matter, you would have like, once again, just had it at home and just kept it. And it's like, no, you know, your belt mattered because it's not about the belts and what it means out in the world. I guess for some people it is. It's like, it's your relationship with your coach and what that journey meant. So that's why it's like, we know it matters to people, right? The fact that your coach has invested this time, blood, sweat, tears and years into you. That's what the belt means, if you will, right? In regards to the subjectivity piece, and I've heard a handful of people, uh, well, once again, with high level of notoriety in our community talk about how, oh, it's just in jiu-jitsu, we see this level of subjectivity in other sports, you don't see this. And it's like, well, that's just straight up incorrect. Well, here, I'll use football because maybe more people know football. Alabama, one of the top football programs in the country for many years. I don't know if they're top right now, but one of the top, everyone knows, right? Division one. Another division one school is UC Berkeley. They're not even close to Alabama. You being a starting quarterback at Alabama does not mean you're a starting quarterback caliber at UC Berkeley. It is subject to the coach of what does it mean to be a high-level black belt division one quarterback. So when we're saying, oh, there's not this subjectivity in other sports, are all division one wrestling programs the same caliber? No. So the idea of like the subjectivity that only falls on the gym or the coach is only present or it's so rampant or such an issue in jiu-jitsu is just silly because that's literally involved in every single sport. You being a division one athlete or once again, a professional athlete, you being a starter for the Golden State Warriors doesn't mean you'd be able to be a starter for Miami Heat, whoever's the better team there. Y'all can use the respective analogy. So yeah, so the fact that people kind of get hung up with this particularly and focusing it on jiu-jitsu like it's a jiu-jitsu problem, I find it just silly because it's like, no, that subjectivity literally lives in all other sports as well. If you were to open Jarrell's Academy of Jiu-Jitsu-ness, what would the Optimize Academy look like to you? And this sort of tends to go to the advice to the new black belts out there that are thinking of opening an academy. So an ideal academy, I'd say, needs to be welcoming. And yes, it's fluffy, but it needs to be a space that people feel comfortable going into. And yes, we can go, well, I started in a garage in a back hole dungeon. We get it. We know, right? But as we want the sport to grow and as it is naturally growing, we want to appeal to a wide range of audience. I want to appeal to 
the college student as much as I want to appeal to the family. So oftentimes it's easy to get stuck in the trap of like, well, I'm here for the jujitsu people, the people that love jujitsu. Jujitsu people, hey, you can throw a mat down and a porta potty if it could fit and we'll roll. <laughs> right. So, so the bar isn't too high for us. Right. But in order to be successful, it's like, no, like you want to be able to expand and grow. And if you say you truly love jujitsu, hopefully you don't only want the people who are an athletes. Hopefully you want the person who is a family person who's just looking for a physical activity and also is able to build a community and they want to raise their kids up in that type of environment. And now those kids want to become active competitors. So for me, it'd be making your space where it's welcoming to once again, as many people as possible. So that once again, your business could grow. So purely from a financial reason, you'd want that, but also from a larger good reason, you'd want that, right? So I'd say that's one thing, making sure that it's welcoming in that space to the best of your ability. Second, I would say having structure and I'd be structure in the sense of having financial structures, having system structure, like membership structures, having a structure of what you're going to be teaching your students. Cause it's easy to go, well, I've been training Jiu-Jitsu for 10 years. I know what I should my students. Well, what order? What do you think is the most important thing? Are you going to show them wrestling every class or not? Are you starting with the mount as the mount is the most, one of the most dominant positions, particularly in the gi, right? Is that where you think is the most important place to start for your students? Like, how are you going to progress your students through the journey that is jujitsu, right? Do you even have an idea about that? Or are you going to do what many people do is, well, my best game is deep half and this, therefore, that's what I'll be showing. And then as we naturally progress, I'll just show other things. So if you want to increase the likelihood that you're not only successful, but also able to deal with the unforeseen challenges that will naturally come, I'd say have those systems in place because now you don't have to worry about, all right, I got to go research what I'm going to teach for class today. You already have what you're doing. You don't have to think about, okay, how do we do competition training? You already have somewhat of a system in place of how you're going to do your competition training. So now your time doesn't have to be spent doing that when things are live. They can be spent on doing other things. So creating a welcoming environment with, once again, hopefully a space that's conducive to that, and then putting systems in place so that when things go wrong, things go right, when unforeseen challenges happen, you have a system to fall back on instead of having to fly by the seat of your pants at that time. So Jarrell, I've heard you mention this notion of black belt lifestyle. Can you uh, expand on that? Yeah. So what black belt lifestyle means for me is we tend to assign certain character traits to someone who's a black belt, right? Hopefully if you've had positive experience. So someone who's a black belt, we go, well, that person must be disciplined, uh, humble, hardworking, organized, a team player, all these positive traits that we tend to assign to someone that has that role, right? And we do that in other areas of life as well. But what I want to emphasize is as much as you have that on the mat, and let's say you do actually have all those character traits on the mat, I want my students or everyone to hopefully carry those traits off of the mat. So don't only be empathetic, teamwork, disciplined when you're on the mat. Do that when you're dealing with your spouse. Don't only be super communicative and great at receiving feedback only on the mat. Do that also when you're in your workplace, right? Or dealing with friends. Don't be flexible and open to explore new things and curious only on the mat. Do that in other areas of your life as well. So how you do something is how you do everything. Correct, right? So when I say black belt lifestyle is, once again, there's just been too many people that have had experiences where they truly respect or look up to a black belt because of their notoriety and skill on the mat. And then, especially in the social media world, you start getting exposed to other areas of people's life and you realize like, wow, this person isn't what I thought they were, or I don't have respect for them, right? Or I don't at least have respect to them as a person, but I have respect to them as an athlete. And for me, I'd love for myself and for others to be respected for what they do on the mats, but even more so respected for what you do off the mats, because we spend more of our life and time off the mats than we will ever do on the mats. So when I say black belt lifestyle, like that's what I'm really talking about. 
And then the other point. Yeah, I personally take more of a holistic approach to athlete development, right? And there's this model in place that's called like a long-term athlete development model. And it's saying these are the phases, generally speaking, that athletes in an ideal world should go through in their life, right? Starting from youth. And I kind of think some athletes get stuck at one of these phases, right? So as kind of going through these phases, there's the active start, which is you starting activity. Let's use jujitsu, right? It's fun. You're exploring it. You're curious. So you do it. Awesome. You're at the first phase. The second phase is fundamentals. You're learning. And when I say fundamentals, I'm not going, well, this is an arm bar. This is a back. No, we're going, this is how you move your body. This is just you getting used to this new space, fundamentally moving and adapting to the space. Then we actually learn like how to train, right? Then we actually learn actually the techniques, right? right? I know how to actually shrimp now or do a technical standup. Now I can actually apply it to actually techniques, right? So people do, we do what most people go through these phases as they participate in, in athletics and sports. The next phase is great. You, you're learning how to train, but now it's you're training to train. Right. And that's a funky one. Right. But so I've learned how to train, but now I'm training to train these techniques. Right. I'm really sharpening and honing these techniques. And at that phase, that's where you start getting as a coach or even as a practitioner, as a coach, you could start going, Hey, I think this person may want to compete because they're really like, they're really refining these techniques. They're asking questions. They're diving in. Right. And as a student, that's where you'll get a lot of people really falling in love with just the training piece. But also that's where they start going, Hey, do I want to compete? Or honestly, this is just fun. I love the training. So after you're training to train, now you're training to compete. And that's what mm -hmm. I'm saying. That's where the split sometimes happens. Some people will go, no, I don't plan on competing, which is totally fine. Or they go, yeah, I'd love to really, I'm, I'm trying to compete. I'm training so I can apply this in competition. Once again, this is where a lot of athletes, if you're an athlete, you will obviously get to this phase. Now, depending on how competition goes, depending on your own temperament, depending on your environment, you may go, competition is fun and I'll train to compete every once in a while, but it's just fun for me. While other people go, no, I am training to compete and win. So that's the next step, right? I'm not just training to train. I'm not training to just to compete and test myself for fun. I'm training to actually compete and win, which once again, if you're an athlete, you will hit that phase. Then the last one, and this is where a lot of athletes struggle, is we almost kind of go back. Our first one was the active start, but now we want to go to an active life, right? Because as an athlete, at some point, your competitive career will come to an end. And it may be a normative ending or a non-normative ending. A normative ending is I'm deciding to retire. Non-normative is I received an injury that's not going to allow me to compete again. And people have different struggles depending on uh, how they end up leaving their sports. But being able to take that journey that you went through, right, from active participation to learning to training to getting, how do I have just an active life? Because I'm no longer a competitor. But how can I have a life that's conducive to me staying active so that I continue being a service to my community in the ways I want to? And that's the thing that, once again, I really try to emphasize with my, with my athletes, with my students, with people in my life is go through the whole entire progress, but make sure that you end up in a place where you're not only doing it on the mat, but you're conducive to the other areas of your life. One final question that I like to ask sometimes is, um, you know, I'm the UPS driver, I'm the plumber, I'm the lawyer, whatever. And I jump into my occasional open tournament and I just haven't achieved gold ever. You know, I keep attempting these things and I'm increasingly getting frustrated and disheartened by this. Your advice to those individuals, your average Joe, so to speak. Yeah. Well, and, and, and maybe this is where I tend to lean more towards into my empathy. Like I, I believe in like checking with your students, particularly the ones that are taking the time to compete, particularly your students who are taking the time to compete. I do think they biasly deserve a little bit more of your attention. So if I see one of my students who, once again, they just never quite hit it, I'm talking to them after the fact, so no matter what, 
of going like, hey, how are you feeling about this? And once again, I'll have them decompress over time, but how are you feeling about this? If they communicate exactly that, I'm frustrated. I feel like I do, I have a good camp, I train, and then I'm just not in it. And it's like, okay, well, what we have currently been doing, I always say we, what we have currently been doing is you come in three times a week, you stay for open mat, you do X, Y, Z. If you're willing to, we can change it and see if we have different outcomes. But I kind of put it on them, but I use it in the term of we of like, here's what we are currently doing, and we're not getting the outcome that you seem to really want. If you want a different outcome, we may have to change what we're doing. Are you open to exploring what that would mean? Is that private? Is that an additional class a week? And if you go, honestly, and we once again would talk it out and you go, honestly, I'm not able to swing that. It's like, okay, well, then we have to start having a conversation of, hey, sometimes it's the luck of the draw of you just being a bad matchup for people. Or also is being able to go, hey, well, you are going to, once again, if you keep going, you're going to sooner or later win. But with the current schedule or system that you have in place, the likelihood that this is going to be your outcome increases. But we can try different options, right? Last time you, I don't know, we focused a lot on your wrestling because you felt like that was your weakness. But this tournament, you lost from passing, right? And then this tournament, you lost from a different thing. So maybe we need to just have a more well-rounded camp for you instead of focusing on what we think is your weakness and we start making your well-rounded. Or maybe you're still competing too often, even though you're only competing three times a year. Maybe we just take a whole half a year and we're just focused on refining your game. But once again, having that dialogue with them and exploring it with them, I think even that makes people feel more comfortable. That has been my advice when it's like three tournaments in a row and you're all losing. It's like, well, are you willing to make a change? Because if you are, I'm on board. And if you're not, that is also okay. But just know that you may increase the likelihood that we're going to continue these outcomes. There's been a, a few times where some instructors have asked, hey, I've got a kid who doesn't have an arm. And he's going into kids class. And it's not that the kids are making fun of him in any way or anything like that. They're just, they have an aversion to this other. There's not an understanding. And so they don't want to train with the kid. And so that's tough. You know, it's really tough. And so they're asking for ideas, approaches, any thoughts that come to mind? Yeah, that's a, that's a tough one. So as I said, like I grew up playing soccer my whole life. And it's funny, my dad, who's our coach, we would do like summer soccer, for example. And while all the coaches, even though this is super not that competitive, all the coaches would try to choose like the biggest, fastest, quickest athletes. My dad would obviously choose my brother, who is a stud freak athlete, division one soccer player, but he'd kind of choose kind of the misfits, if you will. The kid who's like super out of shape, the one who's, you know, can barely, they're sitting there picking the grass. And he kind of like got enjoyment out of bringing them together in their differences and kind of highlighting them, but also having each other like cheer each other on, if you will. So for me, I, I would ask that coach, how are you building a community? That'd be my question. It's like, what do you do to build a community with your kids class? And if they're like, what do you mean? I'd like, like, take me through it. Like, is your kids class, we come in, we line up, we warm up and they're silly. And then we play a game and then we teach the technique. And I go, cool. What are you intentionally doing to create a culture where people's differences are seen as not a big deal and is just part of life? Like, what, what are you intentionally doing? Because oftentimes we go, well, it's not a big deal for me. And I just don't bring attention to it. Therefore, it shouldn't be attention should be brought to it. But it's like, well, if you go, I want a very disciplined environment. I go, what do you do to create a disciplined environment? And if you go, well, I, I tell them that we're a disciplined environment. I talk about it after class. And it's like, that is literally the bare minimum to me. If you go, well, we have a disciplined environment where if they're showing up late, they have to let me know as best as they can in advance. If they are showing up late. They have to bow before they get on the mat. I'm just using those as an example. And then uh, when, I'm when I'm talking or someone else is talking who's showing a technique, no one else can talk, and uh, we show respect, we bow. 
those are intentional things that you're doing to promote discipline in that example, right? So for the kids class, that'd be the same thing. What are you intentionally doing to create an environment for these kids to feel comfortable interacting with not only a kid that may have a physical disability, but someone that looks different than them, someone that maybe has English as their second language, all these other things. Uh, and they can even be done with games. Hey, we're going to play a game, just using an example. We're going to play a game where you have to pass the guard and you can't use your hands, as an example. And then, once again, you can have that little talking moment in the class and like, hey, there's one reason why y'all had that is sometimes you're not going to be able to do it to the best of your ability. Or there are people that don't have those, so they have to become adaptive. So that's just, once again, one small metric you can use. Um, and those for like who, for example, don't know uh, a lot about Jean-Jacques, one of his hands, right, is just has the thumb. So he developed his overhook game, right, which, once again, people tend to look for underhooks, but he developed one of the most strongest and dangerous overhook games in, this, in all jiu-jitsu. So it's even being able to talk about it in that way of, hey, actually, today we're going to be focused on one of my favorite athletes, Jean-Jacques Machado, who has a disformity in his hand that causes this. So I'm going to show y'all techniques. So now we're going, hold on, little Bobby over there is crushing at this technique, or little Bobby's going, oh my God, he's he's similar to me. So drawing connections and being intentional instead of hoping that people just understand what you want them to get. So Jarrell, where can we get more information about you and everything that you're up to? Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Garcia Grip. I'm only on Instagram. And if you're ever in the University of Rhode Island area, I teach classes. You can drop by my class for free. I promise. All right, everyone. Well, I'm your host, Adolfo Ferranda. Thank you for watching, listening. Again, remember to like, share, subscribe. We got merchandise. We're available on all the platforms, even your uh, Amazon lady in the box thing. And uh, so, Jarrell, thank you so much. This was a fantastic conversation. I think people are going to get a lot of value out of it. Awesome. Appreciate you guys. Have a good one. All right. See you guys.